All right, good morning, familia. How's everyone doing today? You guys depressed today? Uh, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez. Um, I want to welcome you all again, those of you that are worshiping, of course, with us online uh, in, pre- in person and also worshiping with us online. We are so glad that you are here. And today I want to start by reading a famous passage written by a famous author that, I, that uh, I, I think it's important to start like that because I want you to ask this question as I read the quote. Is that a description of me? This is a quote that comes from C.S. Lewis, talking about the devil, and this is what he says. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devil. One is to disbelieve in his existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in him. I think that he is right. I think that both positions are unhealthy. I think that if you, only be, if you don't believe that the devil is real, you're going to struggle. I also think that if you have this unhealthy obsession with him, you're going to struggle. And that's why I think that the Bible offers a better option in which he tells you on one end that the devil is real, but that he was defeated already by Jesus Christ when he went to the cross. Therefore, there is no reason why you should be obsessed with him. But on the other hand, he tells you that because he's real, we have to acknowledge that the devil has some power, but most of his power is limited to your thoughts. To influence your thoughts. And part of the reason why the devil goes after your thoughts is because if he gets a hold of your thoughts, he will get a hold of your hearts. And if he gets a hold of your hearts, he gets a hold of your lives. Therefore, do not undermine his power. So the most theological explanation or expression I could use to describe what our attitude should be toward the devil is this. Relax, but not too much. Relax because the devil has been defeated already, but not too much because he is still moving around. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and repeat the phrase, relax, but not too much. So we're going to talk about this topic under four headings. We're going to, all of them starts with the letter T, temptation, temper, temper, technique, and triumph. Temptation, temper, technique, and triumph. It took me like half an hour to come out with those four words. <laughs> so you better remember them. Let's go with the first word, temptation. Why start with this word? I think that the text we read this morning is going to make the argument that one of the devil's primary, quote-unquote, ministries is to, be, is to bring temptation upon humanity. This is why in chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I'm going to go back to the first part of that sentence uh, verse later on because I think it's extremely important. But for now, I want you to notice the second part in in which it tells us that right after Jesus was baptized, right after Jesus is 
uh, ready to start his ministry, the first thing, first thing that happens is that the devil wants to tempt him. That the devil goes after him. Now, if you were reading the text with us, you probably noticed that the way the devil went after Jesus was extremely interesting. He did not go after Jesus to scare him. He did not go after Jesus uh, looking as an ugly-looking demon. He did not go after Jesus to give him this experience of darkness, that there was something weird. I think that, that could happen. I think that the Bible has examples of that. But I want you to see that the way the devil goes after Jesus is by speaking to him. Is by going after his thoughts. Is by wanting to play around with his thoughts. The word tempting in the Bible or temptation in the Bible has a double meaning. Actually, in the original, it could be used as temptation or testing. And I actually think that the Bible makes a difference between how to use those two. I think that the devil uses temptation to make people sin. And the devil and God uses the word testing to test people's characters or shape people's character. I actually believe that what is happening here with Jesus is the devil on one end wanting to tempt Jesus so he could sin. And on the other end, the father is allowing this temptation to test the character of Jesus. But there's a couple of things that I don't want you to miss about the devil. The first one is this, that if you are a believer already, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you want to live for the glory of God, you are ought to expect that the devil goes after you. If he went after Jesus, what makes you think that he's not go after you? This is so interesting about this thing here. Jesus gets baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. The Holy Spirit is commissioning and empowering Jesus. The Father speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the first thing that happens is that Jesus is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't say that that happened. In the Gospel of Matthew, we only have the ultimate test, if you will, right at the end of the 40 days. But if you read the Gospel of Luke, it tells you that for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil is going after Jesus. 40 days and 40 nights of temptation, right before he starts ministry. Once again, if that was true for Jesus, what makes you think that it's not going to be true for you? So if you are a believer... I think it's extremely important that you understand that part of the reason why your life sometimes is so complicated and sometimes it feels like if it's measurable is because the devil has been going after you. So if you are a believer already and you think that your life is not supposed to be that way, somebody sold you the wrong gospel. This is what it means to be a Christian. If it happened to Jesus... What makes you think that it's not going to happen to you? And if you're not a believer and you're exploring Christianity, you might be asking yourself this question. Why would I want to become a Christian then? And I want to make the argument that the devil goes after you even if you're not a Christian. The only thing is that you don't know it. You know how I know that? Because you have been created in the image of God. And God hates God, uh, and the devil hates God, and everything that looks like God. Therefore, he does not love you. He does not like you. He goes after you. You remind him of the very person he hates. 
That's the first thing that I want you to keep in mind. Second thing that I want you to keep in mind is that temptation by itself does not mean that there's something wrong with you. If temptation is the fruit of something wrong within you, then why is Jesus tempted? Temptation is simply what it means to be part of a broken world. If you are a human being, and I think you are, that's what it means to be a human being. You ought to face temptations because we live in a broken world. Someone may be asking the question then, what is the difference between Jesus and us? What is the difference between Jesus being tempted and our temptation? This is my explanation. Jesus was tempted or tested as an invitation to go against his own nature. Let me say that again. Jesus was tempted or tested as an invitation to go against his nature. But you and I are tempted or tested as an invitation to surrender to our nature. Did you get that? That was brilliant, people. <laughs> Jesus is tempted or tested so he could go against his nature. You are tempted or tested so you surrender to your nature. Where do I get that from? I'm glad you asked. See, I'm going to make the argument, listen up, church, that the only reason why we struggle is because the devil uses what we already have. He does not tempt you with what you don't have. Where do I get that from? James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15. Look at what verse 13 says. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting, tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James is saying that God will never want you to sin. James is saying that God will never want you to sin because your sin dehumanizes you. It is an offense against him and he hurts everybody else. Because our, our sins are never lived in isolation. Our sins are always have a community effect. Therefore, because God does not want to dehumanize you and he doesn't want to, uh, for you to offend him and to hurt others, he will never ask you to sin. He will never tempt you. On the other hand, the devil uses temptation in a different way. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice that James makes a difference between temptation and sinning. He makes it clear that one is a temptation and the other one is sin. Sin becomes sin when you surrender to the temptation. But this is the part that I want you to see. The phrase there, evil desire, is actually one word in the original, epithomia. And it's a positive word. It means to desire something, to long for something, for crave something really, really bad. It's to want something too much. And the word enticed, of course, means to be persuaded or trapped. Now, if you grab the whole concept together, this is what it means. This is what James says. That the devil uses all the cravings you have, all the desires you have, all the longings you have, and 
Which, by the way, those are good things that he elevates so much in your heart and you embrace in such a way that they replace God. Just in case you miss it, let me say it again. The devil uses what you already want. The devil uses what you already have. And what you want and you have is this deep desire, this deep longing, this deep craving for good things that become big things. For good things that become God things. And when you do that, then you surrender to sin. Becky uh, Piper put it this way. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Whatever we crave the most, that's what controls our lives. Anything that takes the place of God, that's your Lord. And that's what the devil uses. Whatever controls your life, that's your Lord. And that's what the devil uses. Listen up, church. The Christian life is not just about avoiding wrong things. The Christian life is about avoiding good things that take the place of God. It's not just to run away from evil. It's to run away from things that are good that can replace God in your hearts. That's Christianity. I want to give you an illustration that is super clear in the scripture. And it's John. I mean, I'm sorry, not John, Judas. You guys remember in John chapter 13, it is the Last Supper. And the text says that the devil put it into Judas' heart to betray Jesus. But if you know anything about Judas, you know that Judas already had a problem with money. The Bible tells us that he had already had this, uh, this practice. He was kind of the treasure of the group. He had the practice of saying, one for Jesus, one for Judas. He had the tendency to keep some of the money for himself. What is happening in the Last Supper is that uh, the devil is using what Judas already had. Actually, the Bible tells us that he was willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But Judas could never say, the devil made me do it. Yes, the devil made him do it because he he already had it in his heart. You know what's crazy about that? That no no one knew. For three years, Judas was walking around with everybody. For three years, he was hanging around with all the disciples. Not one time, there's not one verse in which he says that the, that the disciples ever noticed anything different about Judas. Don't you find that interesting? None of the disciples says, well, he acted like he had the devil inside. Nobody ever said that. <laughs> Nobody ever saw Judas with his head flipping around. Nobody said that. Nobody ever saw Judas speaking in an ugly voice. Never heard that. And yet, the devil was working in his heart, using what he already had. You know what gets even more crazy, people? You guys remember in the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you will betray me? 
And then everyone starts name by name. Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? When he gets to Judas, Jesus says, yes, you are going to do it. But did you notice that nobody noticed that? Why was that? Because nobody who would ever expect it. That the devil was working so and so much in Judas' heart. He was like you and I. He was a regular guy. None of the disciples ever said, do you remember when we went out to cast out demons? His demons never came out. <laughs> There's nothing like that. That's why you could be tempted. You can be under slavery of Satan, not because you got these crazy manifestations, but because he's using the desires you have, the longings you have, the cravings you have, that are good things that can easily replace God. Was there anything wrong with Judas wanting money? No. His problem was that he wanted money at the expense of God. I'm sure that if you do an internal assessment, you will find a couple of those things. And we surrender to sin when the devil uses those things to tempt you. Everything we do wrong, church, is a combination of Satan using what we already have. So hear me out if you are a Christian. You are not going to fix your problems by simply running away from evil things. You're only going to fix your problems when you learn to identify what are the idols in your heart. You know, I remember a conversation. I heard someone having this conversation and saying part of the reason why they moved from the city to the suburbs is because there was a lot of evil in the city. When I'm here that, everything inside of me says, bro, you were running away from the city, but your heart came with you. And so did the devil. That's why temptation is a major issue. And that's why the devil uses temptations to take us down. So that's the first point. The second point is, let's talk about the devil, the tempter. Notice that the devil has two names in the text. In verse 1, he's called the devil. And in verse 3, he's called the tempter. Now, that is significant that he has these two names. Because the devil could be translated as someone that slanders or damages reputations. Actually, one of the scholars puts it as someone that gives malicious gossip. It's someone that is speaking next to you. This is part of the reason why the devil is also called an accuser. And if you notice, the devil uses kind of a, of a double punch thing. On one end, he tempts you. And once you surrender to that temptation, he comes back and makes you feel guilty. He's like, boom, boom. He tempts you on one end, you surrender, and then he smacks the lights out of you with, ac with accusations. Isn't that what we find throughout the scripture? This is what he wanted to do in Jesus, with Jesus. Tempt him. And if Jesus would have surrendered, 
he would have come to him to say, and you thought you were the savior of the world. Isn't that what he does with you? He tempts you, your fall, and then he says, I thought you were a Christian. He tempts you, your fall, and then he says, I thought you loved God. He tempts you, your fall, and then he says, and you thought that you were good. He tempts you, your fall, and he says, you are such a disappointment to God. Boom, boom. Why would he do that? Because he wants you to be a slave to your guilt and your shame. That's how he keeps you down. He keeps you a slave to your guilt and your shame. Listen, I am convinced that that's what happened to Judas. That's why it's such a great case study. See, Judas walked around with Jesus for three years. Judas knew that Jesus was a God of compassion. Judas knew that God was a forgiving, uh, that Jesus was a forgiving God. He saw him forgiving people. Judas knew that God is a God of love. He saw it time and time again. But if you know Judas' story, you know that at the end of his story, he killed himself. This is what I want you to see, though. Once again, the Bible says that he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And right when he's about to uh, surrender Jesus to his enemies, Jesus looks at him and says this. Pay attention, church. Friend, do what you came to do. Now, you have to remember that Jesus is sinless. Jesus was not being sarcastic. He's not going to Judas and says, oh, friend. He's not doing that. When Jesus uses the word friend, he means it. Actually, the word friend for Jesus is so and so important that in John 15, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. So why did Jesus call Judas a friend? Even though he knew that he was betraying him. I'm going to give you my opinion on the text because nobody has been able to answer that question for me. So take it as my opinion on the text. See, because Jesus uses the, friend, the word friend in a unique way, I believe that part of the reason why Jesus called him friend before he uh, surrendered Jesus to his enemies is because he knew that at one point Judas would regret what he did. And he wanted, to, he wanted him to remember that Jesus is the friend of sinners. That he is the friend that extends this grace and love. It doesn't matter if you betray him. But look at what happened to Judas. His guilt and his shame killed them. Actually, the Bible says in Matthew 29, I believe, he says that Judas went to the religious leaders and says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And the religious leaders respond, what is that to us? That's your problem. And then the Bible says that Judas, through uh, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. 
Do you know why the devil tempts you? Because he wants you dead. That is the only reason. The devil wants you to surrender to your sin because he wants to kill you. He doesn't want just to make your life miserable. He doesn't want just to cause pain. He wants you dead. And the way you get there is when your guilt and your shame is alive in your heart. And Jesus says completely the opposite. I am the friend that gives his life for his friends. So I don't think that you have the luxury, I don't have the luxury to take temptation lightly. And I don't think you have the luxury and I have the luxury to take the devil lightly. And I don't think you have the luxury or I have the luxury to take my sin lightly. I think that what the devil does is real. And he wants you and he wants me dead. It doesn't matter how much beauty he proposes. So here's the next question. How does the devil tempt you? Point number three. Let's talk about the technique. Part of the reason why I want to include this here is because if you read the scripture, you probably can see that the devil always uses the same technique. If there's one thing that we know about the devil is that he's not innovative. He's not creative. He figured out that there's good, four, four good ways to tempt people, and that's what he uses all the time. You know what's the irony of all of this? That we know it, and we still fall for it. The four things that he's going to use with Jesus is the same four things that he uses with you, and he uses with me. He's going to tempt us to mess around with our identity, satisfaction, security, and significance. We could use different words for that. He's going to mess around with your identity. He's going to mess around with your appetites. He's going to want to make you feel safe. And then he wants to play around with your value. Always the four same temptations. Look at the first one, identity, in verse 3. The tempter came to him, to Jesus, and said, If you are the son of God, and he repeats the same phrase in verse 6. Can you see what he's telling Jesus? If you are who you say you are, prove it. If you are the son of God, prove it. If you are worthy, prove it. If you have value and significance, prove it. If you think that you're somebody, prove it. Identity. Let me ask you a question. Don't you think that this is part of the reason why we all struggle with identity? All right, this is family, right? How many of you guys struggle with your identity every now and then? Now, the rest of you, you are lying. <laughs> this is thing, something that we struggle with all the time. It's when you have this urgent thing to need to prove that you're worthy. That's why many times you feel that you got to prove something to people. Isn't that part of the reason why some people flex their accomplishments? Even if nobody's asking you about your accomplishments, you find a way. Hey, by the way, you know what did this? Isn't this part of the reason why we have this unquenchable desire for recognition and influence? 
Isn't this part of the reason why we feel that we need to prove that we are worthy? Um, actually, this morning, I was remember, remembering about this movie, really bad movie, so don't watch it, please. Creed. You guys remember that movie? It's one of the versions of, from Rocky Balboa. And he is the trainer, and he's training this young man that happened to be the son of one of his friends. Now, the kid is a good boxer, boxer, but not that good. And in the last fight, they're fighting. He's fighting against this other guy, and he's getting destroyed. So almost, almost the last scene of the movie, he gets to the, he gets to the corner, and he can't see anything. And then Rocky Balboa looks at him and says, do you want me to stop the fight? That was so mean. Listen, if I don't make it as a pastor, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> and the kid responds, no, let me finish. I got to prove it. And Rocky says, prove what? <laughs> and the kid says that I'm not a mistake. I want to argue that that's a description of followers. And the devil knows it. And that's why he pushes you to want to prove that you're somebody. Let me make the argument that if that is you, you are so fragile. Because you're never going to be able to convince everybody that you are worthy. Look at satisfaction. Verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And you'll be like, really? Temptation with bread? Is really what he's going to use with Jesus. Well, if you know the context, you understand why is it that the devil was doing that. See, part of what Jesus had to do was to fast for 40 days, and you will see why later on. And he had to finish the fasting. This was the beginning of his ministry. Actually, let me tell you, he was being the new Adam, the new Moses, and the new Israel. See, Moses had a 40 in his lifestyle. The Israelites had a 40 in their lifestyle. He was going to prove that he was the real thing. So why would the devil test them with bread? Was it because there was something wrong with the bread? Was it because there was something wrong with him being hungry? No, this is the thing. He wanted to test them and he wanted to tempt them because the timing was off. See, the devil knew that Jesus had to finish the, the fasting. And he appeals to satisfaction. And he appeals to appetite. And he says, are you really going to finish the race? How about if you take a break right now? Just a slice of bread. Let me give you another illustration so you get it. There's nothing wrong with anybody to want to have pleasure, intimacy in pleasure. Nothing wrong with that. God created that. But what the devil does is he plays around with the timing. That is created 
for marriage within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. Amen. Nothing before, nothing extra. Anything wrong with that desire? Not at all. But the devil brings it in and he says, how can this feel so wrong? How could this be so wrong if it feels so right? Timing. Satisfaction. And then he brings security. In verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. This is what the devil is saying to Jesus. If, don't worry. If God really cares for you, throw yourself down and you will float. Look at the temptation. He's asking Jesus to question if God really cares for him. The temptation is not that Jesus stops believing in God. The temptation is that, he's, that, that he tests God. Like if God needs to prove anything to us. See, I think that every time we question God's faithfulness, it is the devil working in our doubts. And lastly, look at how he works with significance in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Verse 9, all this I will give you, he says, if you bow down and worship me. Here's the question. Anything wrong with power? No, God gives power. Anything wrong with authority? No, God gives authority. Anything wrong with recognition? No, everyone should know, should want to be recognized somehow. Anything wrong with control? No, not actually. You want to have control over areas of your life. You know what the problem was? He wanted to give all that to Jesus without making it to the cross. He wanted to give all this to Jesus without God. He wanted to give all this to Jesus with, before surrendering to the will of the Father. You know what our problem is with power, recognition, and control? That we use that instead of submitting to God. That we want that instead of God. So the question to finish is this. How do we break from that? If the devil is real and temptation is real, and there's a great possibility that we will fall into these things because our hearts is, are full of these things, how do, we not, how do we not surrender to that? We're number four, triumph. James chapter four says this, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And James tells us that we gotta do two things at the same time. Submit to God and resist the devil. So how do we do that? I'm going to offer four different options, four different things. Two come from this text, two come from other texts. Number one, the way you submit to God and you resist the devil is by learning how to, exa to examine yourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the word temptation or test is the same word to use about examining or testing yourself. You know why that's, that's important? Because if you know what you struggle with, you know what the devil is going to use. Example, let's say there's a person that struggles with lust. If the person is weak to that, you think that it'll be wise for that person to spend time with the opposite sex in a place where nobody else can see them. 
Dice un Heidi and I, I didn't use this in the first sermon, so this is fresh material. <laughs> when Heidi and I started our relationship, you know, Heidi was like, she was so in love with all of these things. <laughs> in her defense, I felt the same way about her. <laughs> I knew that I was, my cravings for her were so strong that there were places where I couldn't go. It would be extremely dumb for me to put myself in a situation where my heart cravings and desires will be used by the devil to come out of time. You got to learn, man. You got to examine yourself. You got to know where you struggle. If you say, I don't struggle with anything, you don't know yourself. Number two, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that you must remember that with that temptation, God gives the strength. Meaning that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, God will not allow you to go through the, trend, uh, th uh, through the temptation by yourselves. Listen, the tendency for many Christians is to think that the, Lord, that the way the Lord delivers you is by keeping you away from temptations. But that's not always true. You know what he does? He gives you the strength through the temptation. So there shouldn't be anybody in this room that says, I have to submit to my sin. God gives you what is necessary to go through whatever you need to go through. Number three, you need to understand why is it that Jesus was tempted and why is it and what was the significance of his victory. Now I can go back to chapter four, verse one. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness. To be tempted by the devil. Notice that it was God's doing to send Jesus to the wilderness. The question is why? Listen up. So he could be a representative. See, only a righteous person could die for the unrighteous. Jesus needed to go through that and win so he could later on go to the cross and win. If Jesus would have surrendered to the devil, he would have never been able to save us. Jesus needed to be tempted and have victory, so later on he will go to the cross and have victory, not, all, not only over Satan, but over our guilt and our shame. That's why Jesus goes to the cross. That's why he takes the punishment we deserve. So the devil has nothing on you if you have you place in faith, your, your, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You know that shame and guilt should not get a hold of your heart. Because your sins have been already forgiven. You have been accepted. You have been clean. Your sins have been washed away. Why? Because Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness. And he defeated the devil at the cross. And if that is true, then listen up, church. You don't need to be tempted. You don't need to surrender to a false identity. You are already a child of God. If that is true, you don't need to surrender to the satisfaction that the devil proposes. 
You have been already satisfied. God is for you. God loves you. God is, in, God is on your side. See, you don't need to surrender to the security thing. Because of Jesus, we have not, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if that is true, then you also don't need to surrender to the temptation of significance. You know how, you know how the Bible describes you, if you're a Christian? Prophet, priest, and king. What else do you want? I need to be the boss. What boss? <laughs> and lastly, number four. The only way you've, you resist the devil is with God's word. Did you notice how Jesus responded every time? In verse 4, it is written. In verse 7, it is also written. In verse 10, it is written. Every lie the devil could never, in every lie, the only way the devil can be defeated is not by personal opinions and it's not because you have a strong will. The only way you can resist the devil is when, when you're fighting with God's word. This is why as a church, we are Wheaton Bible Church. We are not a Wheaton Opinion Church. We're not Wheaton Traditions Church. We are not Wheaton Like or Dislike Church. We are not, we're not Wheaton Relevant Church. We are Bible Church. The devil only surrenders to God and his word. That's why you and I must be people of the book. You don't have that. The devil will do whatever he wants with you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you because your word makes it clear that there's a spiritual dimension of darkness, that Satan is real, that he is active, that he's looking for people to devour. But at the same, Lord, we are thankful that because of what Jesus did, the devil was already defeated. He was already destroyed. And his power is limited. So, Lord, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to assume that he doesn't exist. And we don't want to be naive by ignoring how he works. Therefore, Lord, I pray not so much that we focus on him, but that we focus on you. And that you help us pay attention to our hearts. So we don't give him room to use what we already have. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you make us people of the book. That we never surrender to what the devil has or what the devil offers. But that we surrender to your will, your love, your compassion, your mercy, your grace. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say...